Future Church, Part 1, Faking Disciples, The Uncomfortable Reality of Lower Room Leadership. Chapter 1, Two Rooms, The Best Picture to Expose the North American Church's Greatest Challenge. One of my favorite things about being a ministry consultant is that I get to meet a lot of people with interests and hobbies I never would have imagined. In recent months, I met a pastor who collects chess sets from across the world, a denominational leader who hunts wild boar with a knife, and a missionary who makes guitars out of cigar boxes. In comparison, my hobbies are a bit more conventional. I like Mexican food, snowboarding, looking at real estate, and fishing for smallmouth bass on a flowing river. But if I have a quirky hobby, it's this. I love useful tools that show important ideas through pictures. Okay, I know that makes me kind of a nerd, but I love pictures. I can't get enough of them. I am an avid Instagrammer. My favorite part of writing a blog post might be picking the stock photos to go with it. I do judge a book by its cover at first. And when I get a new book, the first thing I do is flip through to find the pictures. I am a super visual person, and I enjoy helping others engage the power of visual thinking. So, as a consultant and author, I am known as a toolmaker. Not the kind of tool you hang on a pegboard in your garage, but the kind you draw on the whiteboard in your office. I enjoy creating visual presentations of important ideas to create new perspective, deeper understanding, and ultimately permanent breakthrough. I have been doing this for 20 years, and I have made many tools that I love sharing with people in my books. But the visual tool I made that has done the most good for the most leaders over two decades of consulting has never been seen in print until now. The four most common reasons people attach to a church. The picture tool begins with a question, why do people call your church home? Phrased another way, what connects people emotionally to your church? If you could roll a soul x-ray machine in front of a person to see the real answer to that question, what would light up their heart? I have found that most people in most churches answer with a combination of the following four attachments. Number one, place. Some people are emotionally tied to the church's physical structure because of its convenient location, its architectural beauty, or their personal investment in dollars and sweat to keep it in good shape over the years. To them, in a real way, the facility is the church. Whether it's a hip industrial campus downtown, a fabulous strip mall renovation, a suburban big box that would make AMC envious, or a beautiful steeple with a dash of stained glass in the rural countryside, we make our places and then our places make us. If you want to know how strong place is as a connection dynamic, just mention relocation in the next church business meeting. A film role of stories spins through my mind when I think of the role of place. One church in Amarillo, Texas had so many donated by signs on church fixtures that even the air conditioner condenser unit in the backyard had a plaque on it. I thought to myself, this church can't even upgrade its AC without offending someone. Perhaps the most dramatic personal experience with place for me came when the Wildale Chapel near Chad's Ford, Pennsylvania called Oxano about 10 years ago. The leadership at the time reached out for my help without realizing that it was my home church when I was in high school. I was going back to consult the church where I attended youth group and preached my first sermon. 
The most wonderful part of my first day back on the property came not when I took in the impressive worship center that had been built to accommodate growth since my day. It was when I walked into the dingy cinder block Sunday school rooms in the basement of the original chapel. A flood of memories came back with the familiar sights and smells of those small classrooms. I was instantly reminded of spiritual breakthroughs and meaningful relationships. At that moment, I would have fiercely resisted any suggested changes to the basement because of my sentimental connection alone. Number two, personality. Some people are emotionally connected to a particular leader because of their amazing skill as a communicator, wisdom as a Bible teacher, or compassion in the ups and downs of life. To these people, the leader is the church. If you want to know how strong personality is, Imagine how attendance would be impacted if your senior pastor suddenly announced he was leaving for a year, or that a guest preacher would be speaking the next 52 weeks. One dramatic illustration of this is a stellar leader who planted a church in a mid-sized Midwestern city. After 20 years of leadership, the fruit of his ministry was significant. For several years, his church even registered on Outreach's list of the 100 fastest-growing churches. While we were traveling together, he confided in me that he had been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Several months later, still before the disease had made any noticeable impact on his physical presence, he announced his condition to the congregation. Within four months, the church's average worship attendance dropped by over 10%. The elders wrestled with what the root cause of the decline might be. They finally concluded, People like a winner. And evidently, you can't be winning if you have Parkinson's. No matter how you slice it, people in a church are deeply connected to the staff of the church. Even when a relatively ineffective pastor leaves a church of any size, there are always a handful of folks who check out. Before moving on, it is worthwhile to pause and look at place and personality in light of church history. These two Ps are essential to church as we know it but they are incidental to real church growth. From A.D. 100 to 300, the Christian movement spread like wildfire despite hostile conditions. While we cannot know the numbers for sure, we know that it grew in order of magnitude, from thousands of believers to millions of them. Rodney Stark conservatively estimates that in A.D. 300, there were 6 million believers who made up 10% of the population. Alan Hirsch observes that in this 200-year stretch, there were no such things as dedicated church buildings, place, or professional clergy, personality. The persecuted church became a force in the world without the supposed advantages that we take for granted as necessities today. Number three, programs. Some people are emotionally tied to the various activities and ways of doing things at church. This may be their favorite way of doing the Tuesday morning women's Bible study, their affection for home groups, missional communities, Awana, kids' church, men's prayer breakfast, or how we make decisions as an elder board. To these people, the activities are the church. If you want to test someone's connection to a program, just mention that church leadership is considering upgrading their favorite one with a newer one. Early in my consulting career, I learned the power of emotional connection to program. I helped a church in Virginia launch a contemporary worship service. Everyone was on board that it needed to happen, but there was deep division about when it should happen. 
The old guard wanted to keep it an early service at the crack of dawn, but the pastor was ready to launch at prime time, the 11 a.m. slot. I came to a board meeting perfectly prepared with a sequence of questions to sell the 11 o'clock option. In the room of a dozen leaders, I ended up engaging in dialogue with Deacon Jim with the full attention of the rest of the board. Jim, I asked with quiet confidence, if we launch the contemporary service at 11 o'clock, you do know that more families with young kids will attend, right? Yep, he replied. And Jim, I continued, you do know that some of those families will not have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, right? Yep, he repeated. And Jim, I drove on, you would gladly launch the contemporary service at the 11 o'clock time slot if you knew that an eight-year-old boy would find Jesus and a church home for the very first time, right? Jim didn't reply right away. Instead, he looked reflectively into the distance. Then he finally spoke. But I have been attending the traditional service since I was eight years old. My jaw dropped in disbelief. Eventually, the church launched a fledgling contemporary service at 8.30 a.m. Number four, people. Some people are emotionally connected to their friends at church. The people who create an atmosphere of acceptance and first-name familiarity. It may be as simple as a 15-minute chat in the church entryway, or it may be a solid, deep kinship in a long-running house church. Or it may be somewhere in between, like the warm connections amidst a year-long weekday small group. For many, these interactions are the church. To measure the strength of this draw of people, imagine how a family may respond once they learn that their two best friends at church are relocating to another town. Would their connection to the church be threatened? A funny feature of congregations is how people resist even small changes in worship service times. Let's say a church has two Sunday morning services at 9.30 and 11 a.m. As the church grows, an additional service time is required. Let's say the leadership decides to launch new service times at 9 a.m., 10.15, and 11.30. With additional service times, you would think people would appreciate more options to suit their preference, but they don't. Church attenders resist the change because they resist the loss of the natural ebb and flow of friendships defined by the current schedule. Changing service times equates to shuffling the relational deck of the church. It might even boot you from your favorite auditorium seat or pew location with the invisible nameplate with your name etched on it. I remind church leaders all the time that it's easier to find this kind of connection in a local bar than it is in a local church. It's a judgment-free zone where, cue the Cheers theme song, everybody knows your name. All humans crave this whether they know it or not. And this sociological reality of life makes the world turn round whether a person is a believer or not. So when a person does find it at church, the last thing they want is to lose it. At some point, every effective disciple of Jesus must confront a natural tension. After a believer experiences salvation, the new saint will most likely experience some kind of biblical community, and many times it is downright wonderful. Yet, at some point, the believer will be confronted with the mission of Jesus, which presents a challenging question. Is it more important to preserve the intimacy of the fellowship 
or to unsettle that familiarity and warmth in order to add the next outsider. To say it another way, will I intentionally walk away from the good vibes of my small group in order to multiply the group so that others may join? To say it Jesus' way, will I gladly leave the 99 for the lost one? Generations of church experience testify to the challenge of the us for and no more Christian club. When people get their identity from friendships at church, they resist the proverbial open chair. As my friend Larry Osborne points out, most Christians are like Lego blocks with all their connectors snapped together with other believers they already know. The most important picture of 20 years of consulting. Now that we have surveyed the four P's, take a moment to picture the church as a two-story house. When people come into your church for the first time, what draws them in? When they decide to stick around the church, what moves them to make themselves at home? The answer to both is usually the four P's of place, personality, programs, and people. Just as a person usually enters a house at the ground level, people enter your church by walking into what I call the lower room, where the church's four P's are located. When people engage with the church, they necessarily form opinions about the place, the personality, the programs, and the people. They cannot help but make or not make an immediate connection to all of the obvious things around them. These are the concrete things they can see and touch and will like or dislike. If someone talks about why they like a church, one of the four P's usually takes center stage. Place. The new building is close to where I live. Personality. Pastor Carlos is such a good teacher. Program. Emma and Aiden really love going to Kid Zone. People, it's the church our friends Joe and Sally attend. Because every person coming in contact with a church first encounters its lower room, every church should aspire to have attractive lower room features. I want to see a stellar lower room in every church I work with. I want them to have amazing facilities. I want the people to think the pastor hung the moon. I hope the programs are exciting and dynamic. And of course, I want people to have great chemistry with friends they enjoy. It follows that good church leaders pay close attention to the lower room. In fact, in order to grow the church, leaders spend much time making their four Ps more accessible from the outside and more irresistible on the inside. We upgrade our sanctuary like we upgrade our kitchen. We hire a young associate pastor to attract younger families. We roll out a new sermon series like a new season on Netflix. We attempt to make our guests feel as welcome as VIPs at Disney World. Please know that in the lifetimes of today's church leaders, this has been the tried and true formula for church growth. If you maximize the attractiveness of your place, the charisma of your personalities, the excellence of your programs, and the welcome of your people, your church will grow. It's that simple. At the same time, however, there remains a disturbing question lurking in the house's shadow. Is capturing people in the lower room real church growth? Is this what Christ called us to do? Tie people emotionally to a place, personality, programs, and people? Does a church where most people are most attached to facility, leaders, activities, and relational chemistry correspond to what the church is according to the Bible? Of course it's not. 
Jesus gave every church a dynamic mission and each church a one-of-a-kind potential. In addition, people prefer to be emotionally connected to a much bigger idea, a more transcendent cause. The life that Jesus offers to each of his disciples through this amazing thing called the local church can hardly be captured in the lower room alone. We need another room. I call it the upper room, and it changes everything. The upper room. The upper room offers an alternative answer to the question, why do the people in your church call it home? People in the upper room are emotionally attached to a sense of purpose beyond place, personalities, programs, and people. Being in the upper room means that a person knows and names God's unique disciple-making vision for a church. Note to the audio listener, here is shown figure one, two different motivations for church attenders. The figure shows the outline of a church building uh, cut in half, the upper half and the lower half. So in the lower half, the lower room, subtitled provision, in the lower room, it shows place, personality, programs, and people with a staircase going up. The top half of the outline of the church states purpose, the church's unique call and disciple-making vision. And next to that, it shows a picture frame with the words vision frame inside. And then next to the whole building is the outline of a person standing outside the church. People in the upper room not only like the vision, but have fallen in love with it. Imagine a Jesus-following college girl excited about her new boyfriend. Picture her sharing with close friends all about his charming personality and commitment to God as she beams with a sense of attraction. Now, imagine a church attender excited to share about her church in a similar way, talking up the specific dream of the church's gospel impact. People in the upper room call their church home because they are passionate about how God wants to use their church family as it gathers regularly and scatters daily. Most importantly, they have given themselves to this holy cause, holy. Let's evaluate the two rooms through a simple comparison. If you were to ask an eight-year-old boy what he wanted most for his life, every answer would be tangible, an electric scooter, a PlayStation, etc. But if you were to ask the parents of the eight-year-old boy what they wanted most for their son, every answer would be intangible, a vital relationship with God, acceptance, confidence, and so on. We wouldn't really fault the boy for wanting the next best toy, but we would find the parents alarmingly myopic, if not downright irresponsible, if they aimed at a tangible thing. Why? Because it would completely miss the beauty and opportunity of being human. We might say the boy is emotionally connected to a lower room of life, while his mature parents live in the upper room. Here is another way to look at it. What quality do place, personalities, programs, and people have in common? They change. And not only do they change, but virtually every leader understands that they must change over time to ensure the viability of both the organization and its higher purpose. The building needs remodeling. The pastor retires. Programs get tired. People move away. Think of this incredible advantage of the upper room. Even when the place, personalities, programs, and people in the lower room change or fall away, the commitment of upper room people does not waver. In fact, I have routinely seen the conversion of people who used to resist change 
now insisting on it. The secret is this. People don't resist change. They resist loss. If you offer someone a 15% raise today, chances are they will not resist the change. If people are emotionally connected to the upper room, they don't have anything to lose when the lower room changes. The four Ps do not compel them to claim the church as their own. Rather, upper room people truly identify with the church's vision frame, that is, its disciple-making mission and disciple-shaping values, worked out through its disciple-moving strategy toward disciple-defining measures of success in light of its disciple-inspiring vision. You will hear leaders in both the church and business world attest to this dynamic of change management. Andy Stanley teaches leaders to marry your mission but only date your model, as he encourages them to adapt and update methodology. In his classic book, Built to Last, Jim Collins uses a yin-yang symbol to contrast a leader's relationship to continuity and change. Organizations that endure must have an undying commitment to a core ideology on the one hand, but a ruthless commitment to change everything else on the other. This, ironically, becomes the only way to stay true to your core. I put it this way when I talk to church leaders. The upper room is what you etch in marble. The lower room is what you write in the sand. In the end, the supremacy of the upper room does not make the lower room a bad place, but it does put it in its place. The four Ps of the lower room are useful to bring people into an environment that supports disciples of Jesus. But disciples are not supposed to remain there. They do not truly become friends of Jesus who do what he commands, John fifteen fourteen, unless they ascend from the lower room to the upper room. The lower room is meant to draw people in, but the upper room is meant to draw people up. The lower room is the provision of the church, but the upper room must be the vision. The lower room can and will change. The upper room is enduring. We can easily see both rooms in Jesus' ministry. When he feeds the 5,000 men, a crowd that could have been up to 20,000 men, women, and children, we see Jesus providing compelling teaching and miracle bread to the masses. It's a lower room environment. The Gospel of John testifies that people came primarily motivated by the benefits Jesus provided, which included a free Happy Meal for the kids. But at the end of Jesus' ministry, how many disciples are gathered who have signed their pledge card with ink, not pencil? One window to this number is the 120 in the literal upper room recorded in Acts chapter 1, verse 15. Another possibility is the 500 Jesus appeared to at one time after the resurrection, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians fifteen six. If you were to have asked Jesus, how big is your church? How would he have answered? I probably would have leaned toward the five-digit attendance figure, especially if I was reporting to my denomination. I think Jesus would have reported 120. Unfortunately, in many churches, including in churches that appear to be thriving, few people dwell in the upper room. When someone tells me they lead a big church, I immediately wonder which room they are talking about. I tend to see the attendance on weekends as the size of the lower room. It is the size of the immediate ministry opportunity, not the size of the church. The true size of the church is the upper room. I would rather lead an upper room church of 120 than a lower room church of 1,200. The first is a force in the community. The other is an event in the building. Confessions of a Consultant 
In 2001, I started consulting with churches full-time and eventually launched an organization called Oxano. At that time, I introduced a new process for helping each church articulate its unique disciple-making mission and model revolving around the concept of vision. Since then, I have founded the Future Church Company, comprising Unique, which delivers gospel-centered life planning to individual disciples, Denominee, which helps networks, multi-churches, and denominations bring value to congregations, and Pivot, which brings the principles of Future Church to the local church. When I began helping churches overcome barriers to growth, I was thinking about more than merely accumulating attenders. Rather, I was thinking about real church growth born from the Word's effect on the human heart and developed through the pattern of disciple-making disciples, men and women who value, practice, and model new skills in living the way of Jesus. For two decades, my primary work has been to help each church assess, articulate, and advance how God has shaped it to make disciples according to its unique context. It's one-of-a-kind congregational makeup and the particular callings of its leaders. I call it vision framing. The goal in building a vision frame with a church team has nothing to do with an event-based retreat to articulate a new mission, vision, and values. Rather, it involves a disruptive and challenging process where the team rethinks its existence at a core level and remakes its church operating system from the ground up. My calling is all about applying essence. A vision framing process penetrates to the essence of a local church and pushes it through to application. Vision framing isn't complete until the empowered local leadership can articulate with convictional clarity how they will live out their own disciple-making model in their time with a specific dream for dramatic gospel good in their place. The vision frame answers five irreducible questions of clarity. These answers become the codified vocabulary that defines the upper room. First, this makes it accessible to people. A vision transfers through people, not paper. Second, it enables the church to reevaluate, realign, repurpose, replace, remove, or renovate the lower room stuff in order to promote and propel the upper room vision. For as long as I and many others have been leading church teams through vision framing, we've never faced a lack of interest. The demand for our tools testifies to the church's hunger to make the main thing the main thing. Churches understand what it means to have no growth or fake growth. Every church I have worked with wants real growth by making disciples of Jesus. Yet, I have a confession to make. Some of our work has contributed more to the illusion of fluency in disciple-making than it has to the real thing. If I could have seen this clearly as it was happening, I would have called it out. But in real time, my hopefulness overpromised on what my helpfulness delivered. With rearview mirror visibility on a 20-year report card, I would sort my clients into three buckets. A leading third that soared in fulfilling the mission of Jesus, a middle third that demonstrably picked up the pace, and a lagging third that only messaged the mission, all talk, no do. I now see that although no church, large or small, traditional or contemporary, Baptist or Presbyterian, mainline or new start, disagrees with Jesus' mandate for his church to make disciples. Many fundamentally fail to do so, even while they become more adept at articulating disciple-making outcomes as their core reason for being. Words create worlds.
I love the phrase, words create worlds, attributed to Abraham Joshua Heschel. That mantra expresses the conviction I bring to churches to help them name what they can do best as communities of disciple-making disciples. I am an idea architect, and words are construction material. I often teach that the secret to getting people in the upper room is building a staircase, one that is not made of wood, but of words, a shared, codified vocabulary of the upper room. Words are the leader's primary tool, after all. If we can just say it well, say it together, say it often, and say it with feeling, surely people will catch the vision. Surely they will taste and see the biggest ideas of God. This is my conviction, and I have found it to be the strength of my ministry. It works, but there is a weakness in over-relying on the technology of getting words right. Yes, words create worlds. Yes, the pen is mightier than the sword. But it's also true that talk is cheap. I now understand more clearly how a church that is not making disciples can walk through an intensive vision framing process and come out the other side a spiffier sounding church still not making disciples. Even when a church's disciple making language improves, the upper room remains inaccessible. I do not believe the vision frame has been fatally flawed. Not only myself, but also the consultants, denominational leaders, and pastors I've trained and certified have seen tremendous fruit. Yet, I do believe that, as every reflective person and organization eventually discovers, our greatest strength carries with it our greatest weakness. In our case, we have helped people appreciate and even personalize the disciple-making words of Jesus but that has not automatically propelled them into the disciple-making works of Jesus. The bottom line is that I underestimated the power of the lower room. Its gravitational pull is not the tug of a minor moon, but the force field of a black hole. Our consulting work is extensive, but it has not always broken through to the church's essence. When I thought I was installing a new operating system, some churches were merely installing a new app only to abandon it for the next Silver Bullet app a year later. The Seven Laws of the Upper Room as Visionary Planning Prequel In my first clarity book, Church Unique, I unpacked the problem of photocopied ministry, and I unveiled the process of articulating a vision frame that enables church leaders to answer the five irreducible questions of organized disciple-making for their unique congregation. The Vision Frame is an operating system designed to help leaders shape their church's culture and guide their church's growth. It helps a pastor lead from a unique disciple-making mission and model. In my second clarity book, God Dreams, I showed church leaders how to discern and develop a long-range vision for their church and then install a simple execution plan to achieve it. Built on the Vision Frame, God Dreams features the Horizon Storyline, also known as the 1 to 4 to 1 to 4, a tool that expands and deepens a church's answer to the fifth irreducible question, where is God taking us? These books are volumes 1 and 2 of a visionary planning methodology used by churches of every faith tribe. When a vision framing process is done well, the end result is always one of a kind. This is what I live for. In all my years as a consultant, I have been Mr. Uniqueness, I have never lost my abiding passion to see each church and, through my organization unique, each individual believer, live out its special calling from God to do what 10,000 other churches could never do. 
I urge churches not to short-circuit God's missional potential by cutting and pasting someone else's playbook. I designed the vision frame as the tool to help leaders know and name the beautiful one-of-a-kind features of its upper room. Yet, I now see that all the work that goes into furnishing the upper room makes little difference if leaders are not acquainted with the upper room itself. If well-intentioned leaders are locked in a lower room mindset, all the great words they craft do not take people upstairs. They keep everyone, including themselves, circulating on the ground floor. They use more vivid, purpose-filled language to keep drawing people into the lower room, and they overlay upper room expectations onto lower room actions. Consequently, before I walk a church team through the five irreducible questions of organized disciple-making, the vision frame, it is not safe to assume that we all share the same convictions about disciple-making that the vision frame is founded on. That means I have to introduce leaders to the upper room so that they commit to it themselves before I help them bring the rest of their church upstairs. So, when I walk into a church today, I no longer start with the five questions— but with seven laws. That's what Future Church is all about. Future Church is my first book on the church's general calling. The disciple-making principles that ought to characterize every church. This book does not describe a boilerplate ministry model to be imposed on every church. Rather, it describes the fundamentals that every church must hold and operationalize if its own unique model would take people where God yearns for them to go. Think of Future Church as the prequel to Church Unique and God's Dreams, the episode released later in the series that tells how the whole saga begins. I wish every pastor, church leader, and ministry I have ever served as a consultant could have read it before we started working together. This is even truer today, because every church and leader in North America is at a crossroads. Over the next 20 years, each church will increasingly resemble one of the three types— Which one yours becomes has everything to do with its upper room, its lower room, and where people's greater attachment lies.